This is an RNZ podcast. News Hub's preferred Prime Minister findings also led RNZ's morning report on Monday. And on Wednesday, it was all that presenter Susie Ferguson wanted to talk about with Judith Collins. This News Hub read research poll, do you think it's a rogue one? Uh, no, I just think it's uh, the first one that they've done since the election. And nobody's particularly focused, other than you and me and a few others, on politics. But while Judith Collins is having to talk about almost nothing else but the level of support for her leadership right now, there's no such drama for the Prime Minister. This week, there were more positive headlines about her leadership, including a story in The Herald, which began like this. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has topped Fortune magazine's list of the world's greatest leaders, beating out a number of influential people, including Dolly Parton. The publication cited her leadership through COVID-19 as the catalyst for her top ranking. And that's Jacinda Ardern that Fortune was referring to there, not Dolly Parton. But how much Fortune really knows about what's not gone well for the Prime Minister in her government this past year, or whether she'd really achieved more than the developers of the messenger RNA delivery system that makes COVID-19 vaccines effective, it's impossible to say. However, in spite of a survey recording declining trust in the news media these days, new research based on thousands of media reports in the last year shows that what the media say about our leaders and their leadership still seems to be critical to their popularity and their perceived trustworthiness and effectiveness. Media monitoring firm Icentia has been studying aspects of leadership in contemporary politics and commerce since 2018 in order to get a fix on changing styles and expectations of leaders. A pre-COVID part of Icentia's research concluded that leaders who are out there more in the media reap the rewards when the news for them and their enterprises is bad. And Icentia also concluded that failures of leadership are featured so commonly in media coverage that they heavily influence the trust that the public have in organisations, governments and communities. Now that's something Judith Collins could relate to at the moment, but there are also findings in the research for the media to ponder. Icentia's latest report, which is the first one completed after COVID changed the picture last year, also compares mainstream media coverage in New Zealand and Australia after March 2020. It zeroed in on the coverage of two officials who were thrust into the media spotlight during the COVID crisis, one here and one over there, and how press conferences were key to what the report calls the performance of transparency, which isn't the same as actual transparency. And while some leaders benefited from that, says the report, the reporters and their media outlets did not. Icentia's head of insights is Nairi Crawford. There are very few subjects that touch everyone in quite the same way that leadership does. Either on a political level or just from a personal workplace level, everyone's had a good leader, everyone's had a terrible leader at some point in their lives. So there's something in that that kind of connects with a wide a wide audience. So that's why we've always been interested. Now this is also like a, this is a commercial product, right? You want to mm. give this to commercial clients to show them what's changing, what are the expectations of leadership, mm-hmm. what are the, uh, the public perceptions and so on. So this is something that you're giving to your clients as a service. You're not doing it for the, yeah. the, the public welfare of New Zealand. No, and that, that is a, that's a fair point. I mean, I fundamentally work with uh, communications and PR professionals around media and, and what's working for them and what's not. Uh, leadership is also an incredibly common theme in communications conversations. For the communications industry, one of the things that is the biggest struggle is to have leaders communicate well, having communicators be able to influence leadership in the way that they want. Uh, The finding here, twice as likely that Australian media would report on leadership positively rather than negatively, but for New Zealand, the reverse, 
2.5 times as many negative mentions of leadership as there were positive. That's a huge difference. What accounts for that? The Australian media environment, it is very different. It's much larger, has a a clearer political split. So when you have um, a prime minister that's largely supported by by most media in that environment, that that really helps. Also, a lot of their uh, leadership discussions are linked to sport uh, and their federal COVID response as well. For New Zealand, it's not so much that our government or our leaders are positioned poorly. It's that New Zealand media are less likely to overtly praise leadership are more likely to publish comparative uh, studies of either where our leadership has been praised overseas or just where leadership is not working overseas. So it becomes that interesting comparison that's not quite as direct. Well, right now, if you look at articles about leadership in the New Zealand media, a lot of it is about the leader of the National Party. Does that partly explain this difference? Because the leaders and their political strategy and their popularity seems to be just occupy so much of political reporting. It does, and we were obviously going through um, a a general election at the time that we were looking at this as well. So it does definitely influence it, and particularly when opposition particularly is going up against probably one of the most popular political leaders we've had in a significant amount of time. It's the leadership discussion that becomes more important. It's less about specific policy points or anything like that. It's about how are you going to combat that popularity. Well, last time we spoke after, I think, the second part of your research into this. Uh, That was all Mm -hmm. pre-COVID, so things have changed since then. But you said the conclusion was that leaders who kind of show up both physically and emotionally, particularly when there's bad news, there's a challenge facing an organisation or a business, uh, they benefit from that. Jacinda Ardern was a case study how she handled post-March 15th. Mm. By contrast, Boeing executives uh, in the background trying and not succeeding to fix problems, not really engaging with the media when they'd had their Boeing 737 MAX plane crashes, things mm. like that. So those are two contrasts. But this time, um, I think it says here you found that um, that leading with empathy and creating an authentic uh, relationship between a leader and the audience, something you found last time, this time COVID, do you think, has amplified that? It's, it's hugely amplified it, and I think it's made it really interesting because everybody's been looking at the same kind of crisis scenario across the world and watching how different leaders respond. And if anything, it's kind of galvanised what we could see before around people trying to seek out a humanity in a leader. Leadership in the, in the world during COVID had that interesting division of people that are quite populist leaders and then others that have been this new wave of leadership. And I think, I still think they kind of come from the same the same place in terms of what people want from them. Often the populist leaders are still being driven by a response to structures that people don't think are empathetic or understand them or are humane towards them. So they'll fight for anything that they think would be different. What did you find when you looked at uh, specifically Dr Ashley Bloomfield, uh, boss of the Ministry of Health, who, as we know, uh, the public warmed to, Mm. and he uh, became a trusted figure. In Australia, Victoria's Premier Dan Andrews, he got an awful lot of sometimes hostile mm-hmm. coverage from the media because in Victoria was the state which um, where things didn't go as well as it did in, in others. So what do you find by comparing the media coverage of their styles of, of leadership? In Australia, more so than in other countries that, that kind of size and that geographically spread, COVID particularly was held by state leaders. But for Dan Andrews, there were very questionable decisions and struggles with their COVID response, the media response to him was very reflective of that bipartisan nature of Australian media, and that's what we thought was 
was interesting where he was always an incredibly popular leader in Victoria. But when you read media narratives about him, it's the idea that he's incompetent, but he's also the opposition party to the federal government, the current sitting federal government. So there's a few things at play at play there that make it interesting. And we deliberately didn't look at the Prime Minister either because when you're looking at leadership models, you want to try and see who else is matching up to them. And the cultural response to Dr Bloomfield, like the fact that you could buy a T-shirt with his face on it and you can buy a Dr Bloomfield tea towel um, and that someone has them tattooed on, has, has him tattooed on them, I think is really... It's just an interesting trajectory. Is it though? I mean, isn't there really a few people who are reacting in that way? And some of that response has almost mm. struck me at times as being a bit juvenile. Um, was that really um, the public responding to the leadership? Yeah, the, the cultural response was also reflective of the, the time that everybody was in where we were all doing things differently and had a, probably a lot more time on our hands. But I think when you look at when, how people responded when when he was blamed for something that wasn't necessarily his fault and how protective people became of him as an authentic and kind of authoritative figure and they, you know, people were upset when he wasn't there and the stand-up had someone else in it or when David Clark tried to throw him under the bus and you had journalists tweeting about how brutal that was. Like there's just there was just this kind of emotional connection to him that would probably not exist in any other circumstance. But Is that was, partly a function, sorry to interrupt you, of not being a political figure? That he was thought to be, that somehow oh, this poor guy is trying to serve the public as a public servant and here he is caught in the middle of politics. That was when people really felt that? Potentially, but there's also something in the way that people considered and positioned him to be very, very humble. And that's always something that particularly New Zealand audiences will connect with as well. So if you're looking at a guy that in your mind, is trying to do the right thing, trying to be honest. Those are the things that when you ask people about what they value in a leader, that's what they tell you they want. This is pretty galling for journalists. So, for example, just to pick one, Michael Mora of News Hub, digging mm. quite hard into um, failures and where official statements hadn't quite matched up mm. with the performance as presented in those press conferences, which we'll talk about in a minute, mm. uh, you know, to be thought that to report uh, critically on the performance of him Mm. Uh, and and the effort he led um, that then cops this public backlash like don't say mean things about a person we like uh, when in fact they were exposing some pretty important stuff. Communicators operating in a crisis mode past a point when they necessarily need to and what is good communication in a crisis can very quickly turn into quite restricted communication in non-crisis mode. So there's, there's a definite issue with how public responded to press conferences and journalists and the idea of a journalist and that they were you know they were asking dumb questions which is a complete misunderstanding of what the role of a journalist is in those in those settings and when you kind of combine that with narratives around distrust of media and misinformation and all of those things it makes it quite quite a complex area well we'll talk about that in a minute but on this like I'm wondering whether partly this is kind of almost a blueprint. Sorry, this sounds very cynical, but <laughs> if if I present myself like Dr. Bloomfield and make the public love me, I can get away with all sorts of average or mediocre performances. Mm. And if I've got a wellspring of public support by just presenting myself in the right way <clears throat> and appearing to demonstrate the kind of leadership people warm to, then I might get away with a pretty average performance either by me or the people I lead. You will for a while, but you can see how analytical and potentially a bit more savvy audiences are now and how quick they are to call out behaviour they don't like, how quick they are to cancel something they don't like. 
the risk there of being found out is very, very high. Mm. So this is not a blueprint for... No, legal, I would not, I would not recommend it as a blueprint, To no. try and PR their way out of no. um, not being very good at their jobs. Okay, fine. Um, now, the press conferences, as mm. you mentioned, to quote from the report here, uh, daily press conferences during the COVID crisis became uh, a warm blanket and appointment viewing during lockdowns. Mm. Um, <clears throat> this prolonged experience of press conferences, still quoting from the report, has the potential to change habits and expectations around communications of official information as well as the potential to prompt the desire to see information in the same way as it is presented to media. We surveyed people around what their future press conference habits would be and most of the people we surveyed indicated they would happily watch a press conference again. It's not really something I think anyone would have thought about People could tune in to watch mm. the post-Cabinet press conference every Monday if they want. It's live-streamed yep. on news organisations' websites and Parliament's own, but I don't think people do. I don't think they did. I think they do now. There is a certain level of expectation that, well, if you want to know what was announced or you want to know what happened and you know that the, the Prime Minister is going to do a press conference, there's more desire for you to tune into it because you know what that experience is and you know that you'll get information and you'll see what that process is like. So I think it has certainly changed that expectation and I believe more people will be interested in watching them unfold in the future. And your report points out as during the COVID crisis, as audiences became more comfortable with the the press conference or those daily updates and the format, um, journalists uh, copped a lot of criticism and the public reacted uh, really badly. But part of the problems is that the journalists, if you talk to them, regarded those as they talked about government by press conference Mm. or leadership Mm -hmm. by press conference and uh, there was a means of control over them Mm. and their inquiries. So they would often have to wait a full 24 hours Mm -hmm. before being able to put another question in a way they wouldn't have had to to have done in in normal circumstances. Yeah, that's that's the big reason why we talk to journalists in response to this work as well because we were really interested in what the other side of that has been like and particularly whether or not if this is now a habitual form of communication. Because we do know that when you're trying to, as a journalist, when you are trying to get an answer or you're trying to get information quickly, you are more than likely now going to be referred to either a timed media release or a presser, which is not the same as access. And the biggest tension that sort of always exists between communicators, particularly, and journalists is access. And this is really another way to restrict access. From a communication standpoint, it's very smart and best practice. It allows you to have strong control of your message. It allows you to you know, answer questions in the way that you want to answer them in the format that you want. But it does have such potential to alienate a very significant stakeholder if you restrict access. Mm-hmm. And the, the, that significant stakeholder, are they still um, you know, months, months on from uh, those regular daily press conferences? Are they still a bit bitter or upset about somehow ending up as the villain of the piece in the eyes of some members of the public at least? Uh, from the, the interviewing that we did, there's certainly still a high level of frustration. One of the journalists that we talked to labelled this government as the most anti-media government they could remember, uh, which I thought was a very interesting statement, but they could support it through that kind of tactic, and a lot of it is because they, there is such a high level of control of the communications that you just can't access anyone. Mm. And yet you have to wait a whole other day mm. to interrupt what you would normally regard as the, the, the flow, flow of news or the cycle. Um, <clears throat> but the issue that you've also highlighted is when the media is concerned, there's a, there's a kind of underlying issue, mm. which we've talked about on this program in recent weeks, uh, and that's public trust mm. in the media. So you've said here, while the pandemic uh, resulted in increased consumption of media, global trust in media has been in steady decline. So here is, as well as other places in the world. Um, so... 
the media are a default source of information in times of crisis, um, but a significant potential that this information is viewed through a sceptical lens, you mm. say. So you think that's a real issue here in New Zealand where the, the trust problem isn't as pronounced as it has overseas, that th- there's already a kind of starting point, a base level of like, ah, the media will, but people don't think they're going to be either honest or get things right? I have an issue with the trust narrative around media because of the way that it's researched, which is the, the global cultural narrative about media far surpasses anything. Mm. So if you ask people now about whether or not they trust media, they're naturally going to be inclined to say no because they believe that they shouldn't. Mm. That doesn't mean that their behaviour matches up with that opinion, and you can see that in the increased consumption of news and the use of news outlets as a default source during the time of crisis. One conclusion reached here, there is a clear demand for leaders and organisations to take a social or political stance that they may not have taken Uh, previously, Mm. uh, along with uh, a vehement desire to uh, hold to account those who are perceived not to be living up to a required moral standard. We can see a strong desire for ethical behaviour. Is this what we're seeing here? Is that that a a Mm. pattern we can expect more of? Especially overseas where there has been stronger social movements and and response to, to those movements online, there is a really clear desire for people to have a view and a stance and behave in a certain way. So Some, big corporations yeah. endorsing Black Lives Matter, for mm-hmm. instance, as an example. Okay. Yeah, it, because it became really clear in those in those events that, especially for corporate structures and leaders that are very risk averse, that's absence is, is kind of the, the comfy place to be. But that's not what audiences and you know your potential consumers and all of that type of thing. That's not what they want anymore. But how do you know that? How do you know? So the majority of Vodafone's customers say, look, I honestly don't care if you're trying to uphold uh, the principles of te 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 waitangi in your mm. workplace and you have an inclusive policy and you won't engage with um, uh, Magic Talk Station if it does racism on its talkback. You know, we don't care about any of that. Just sell me a phone and a good broadband plan cheaper than the competitors. I think that is an idea that may potentially age out. Younger demographics and how people make choices and ethical consumption – those are things that if you're trying to secure your future customers and you're trying to create a longer-term view, then those are things you need to consider. And right now, um, as we mentioned earlier, Judith Collins, her leadership, Mm. uh, this isn't a new thing. We've seen opposition leaders in particular become the focus of relentless um, stories about their leadership, which in your surveys, I guess, would come across as the ones that would be marked as negative Mm. (laughs) perceptions Mm. of of leadership. But... um, do you, does it strike you as a survey that this is getting even more intense? That you know the the media narrative around Judith Collins, her leadership, and this is out of the period of your mm. current research, of course. But um, as I say, it's a recurring theme: political leaders, particularly in opposition, relentlessly scrutinised as to their popularity and so on. If you're Judith Collins and trying to be a leader, is there any way out of this? Because right now she can't talk about anything else than her support for her own leadership, because that's all the media are focused on. Yeah, and the, the leadership narrative is especially intense now for the current government be, because our Prime Minister is held up to be, I mean, internationally a very well-regarded leader. And it's the idea of what's the, what's the best approach here? Is it to be the opposite of that? Is it to try and mimic the same behaviours but just with a different point of view? I think where Judith Collins is falling into a trap is that she hasn't committed to either. So she's sort of in the middle. Um, whether or not that's conscious or that's just how it's coming across, it 
it is a bit more personality driven than I think it is traditionally leadership driven, um, which always makes it complicated and, and a hard one to actually win, really. And earlier this week, Stuff's political correspondent Thomas Coughlin wrote an article saying, actually, National as an opposition is getting its act together. And he mm. pointed to various MPs who've been doing good work at examining things like the vaccine rollout and the flaws in that, which is mm. the role of an opposition. Other areas like um, immigration policy and uh, um, some, some criticism there being raised by um, uh, Eric Stanford, MP. And he said, look, all of this is being lost mm-hmm. in, the, in the noise because all of the media's reporting uh, is about Judith Collins and her leadership and the popularity of the party. Yeah, which is interesting in the context of when you have you also have a media environment that is not being communicated to in the way that they want to by the current government. So there's actually a huge opportunity there to change the narrative around the opposition and you know com- continue to push their analytical work around response. But they do have to get out of this kind of personality comparison because it's not it's not a fruitful comparison, but it does also feel like it feels like in their representation of themselves, they haven't figured it out either. But is there anything they can do about it if, if that's all the media will ask about? They will poll people, who do you want to be the Prime Minister? We don't vote for a preferred Prime mm. Minister, but they're asking, even though, as we're finding, four out of ten people actually don't want to answer that question, which is yeah. really interesting and rising. They, they're not interested, and yet the media build this narrative that, that, that Judith Collins is way, way less popular with the public as a perceived leader. There's nothing they can do if that's the way the media want to frame it, is there, as is, is politicians. No, and it's so much of it is about time and building trust and proving, being able to to anchor to those things that you know that you've done effectively. The issue that always happens there is that, well, it's 5%, so maybe we should consider changing it. And it's like, well, that's the worst thing to do because the public can't keep connecting to new people every six months. Well, that's this week's politics, which is well out of scope of your actual <laughs> research. So I'll stop asking about that and re- return to that. Um, it says in the report here, the changes brought about by the pandemic showcase leadership on a scale that's largely unprecedented as audiences watched how um, the world responded. Um, and you say here, potentially creating a view of leadership that will endure past the crisis and permanently shift expectations. Mm. W- what is this permanently shifted expectation that we now have uh, post-COVID of leaders, be they in business or in politics? Well, I think there's previously been this assumption that female leaders and leaders that were considered to be more empathetic weren't going to be the ones that were effective in crisis. So what it has done is sort of endorsed that that style of leadership that we could see public responding to more is a very viable form of global effective leadership. That's been something that I wouldn't have necessarily expected before. I expected that this type of leadership shift would take much longer, uh, and I think that this has really sped it up, helped to change people's opinion about things that are important here and and all of that type of thing. And just finally, I mean, you talked to journalists as part of this Mm. report to get their experience of covering um, the emergency situation and reporting leaders and leadership during that. Um, But what can they take from this, do you think? My concern as I guess a researcher and observer at the moment is that tension between uh, government communication and the journalists and that that does create a huge amount of risk and it can create a somewhat irresponsible reporting environment and that if you feel declined access that may influence the other sources that you might use. It may change the structure of how you create a story. And knowing that there is still such a significant influence, my only concern is that that doesn't 
get lost or, or warped based on how the government is trying to restrict information at the moment. So the journalists who've been through this were telling you they felt more controlled during the COVID mm. emergency and that this is something that might be bedding in, yeah. particularly this, this government and yeah. these politicians. The descriptions have not been about COVID response. It's been about the government. So it, it, that's probably the thing that would concern me more is that it's less about the isolated incident and more about how they view government communications generally. That's Nairi Crawford, the head of insights at the media monitoring company Icentia, which has analysed thousands and thousands of media reports since 2018 as part of a study into leadership in both government and business and the role media coverage plays in success or failure and perceptions of success and failure.